Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be interviewing Amy. Before we introduce Amy, we would like to point out that we are also members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. And I'm just going to put another shout out for Beyond the Block, our friends James and Derek, because they work really hard on their podcast and they're two of the most amazing people that I know. They deserve your support and they have a great episode recently on allyship. So make sure you listen to that. Okay. Yep. Today we're talking to Amy. Amy, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? Good. Thanks for joining us today. We're really excited. For people who don't know you, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. So I'm Amy Chapman. Let's see. I'm a teacher. So I teach up in Wasatch School District. And I teach special ed, so I work with elementary schoolers with disabilities and kind of help them with anything and everything. We do social skills, we do behavior, we do reading, math, all of the above. So that's really fun. I also coach swimming, both on a club team level and a high school team level. And that basically takes up my whole life. So it's really fun. (laughs) Right before we started, Amy told us that she was in school all day and then she went straight to swim and now she's home and talking to us. So thank you for joining us. You must be exhausted. We really appreciate your time today. Amy, why don't you share a little bit about your disability? Yeah, so I'm a double amputee. I was diagnosed with what's called fibular hemimilia when I was born. And what it is, is I'm missing the fibula bones in both of my lower legs. And I had toe bones that were like attached to my shin that were really weird. So I had an amputation at a year old just to fit prosthetics better and have been walking on prosthetics ever since. It's just been something I've had my whole life and just kind of gone with the role. Okay. Can I ask a question about that really quick, actually? I've seen that some people that are amputees are super into prosthetics and some are really kind of not into them. Can you share a little bit more about why that is, if you have any insight on that? Yeah. So I kind of describe it like a love-hate relationship, that prosthetics, (laughs) when they fit and they are working the way they're meant to work, I love them. They help me get around and access what I need to access and do all the things that I really like to do. When they aren't fitting and when there's something wrong, it's a pain in the butt. It makes it really hard to figure out how to make them work so that you can do the things that you're used to. So it just kind of depends on if they're working or if they're not. Also, if you are lower leg amputee, typically we wear prosthetics much more than arm amputees just because they're more adaptable, I guess, and they're more Hmm. useful to us than arm amputees sometimes. Okay. I didn't know that. I was just going to ask, do you wear your prosthetics all the time or do you take them off for some situations? Like I know that there are people who are ambulatory wheelchair users, so I was wondering if that's like kind of a thing depending on the person too with amputees, except with prosthetics. A lot of it depends on how far I'm walking. So just like my normal day-to-day, going to school, going to coach, all that kind of stuff, I will wear them. But if I'm going like downtown and I know I'm going to be walking a lot or 
if we're going to like an amusement park and we're just going to be on our feet all day, I'll usually wear my legs, but I'll bring my wheelchair as well so that my legs don't get so tired because they do start to hurt after a while and it just gets harder to stand. So there are times where if I'm walking a really long ways, it is easier to do my wheelchair. I don't know. I always describe it as it just makes me happier because I don't have to worry about how far we have to walk or if my legs are going to fit right Mm. or things like that. I just know, okay, I'll have my chair. I can get around without having to worry about it. Nice. We love that. That's what mobility aids should be, right? They should be there as a backup, as a help, as an aid, (laughs) as a good thing. Yeah. I don't know if you know about this vocab, but do you have a preference between identity first language and person first language? That's like disabled person versus person with a disability. Yeah. So I feel like there's so many conversations about that language. For me, I don't really care so much how they describe my disability, whether they say, oh, you're an amputee or you're a person with prosthetics or whatever. What I care about is that they don't identify me like just as having a disability. Like that's not the only thing that I am. That's not the only part of me. Yes, it's a big part of me and it's something that shaped my life a ton, but there's so much more. I'm an athlete. I'm a teacher. I'm a daughter. You know, however many descriptions you want to put to me, my disability isn't the first thing that I feel like identifies me or defines me. Mm. It's just not the first thing that I think of because... It's just always been me. It's my body and what I've dealt with. Yes, I love that. I love that. It is kind of funny when able-bodied people meet disabled people and they're like, tell me about your body. Like (laughs) how weird and personal that can be and how if we did it to them, they'd be like, what are you you talking about? And I don't know, sometimes I feel like it's kind of sad because when people do come up and ask me like, oh, what happened? Like if you were to come up and say that to a typical person or someone without a disability, they would be like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What happened? And with us, it's just kind of this like stigma of, oh, we automatically assume they're asking us about our disability or asking us about all these crazy things that could have happened to us growing up. And part of me is like, it's none of your business. Why do you really even care? And then part of me is also like, they're just curious. They're just wanting to know more about you. I've had some people that I've met through sports and things like that, that have struggled with it a lot more than I have. I feel like it's harder if you have disability come on later in life and it's through an injury or an accident or something like that, rather than from when you were born, because I've really been asking these questions since I was four years old. It's just been life and something that I've gotten used to. Mm-hmm. But part of me always is like, why do I get used to this? Why do I just assume, okay, I have to tell them everything? when you don't necessarily have to. You're right. Okay. So we were wondering with everything about 2020 and 2021, how has COVID impacted your life as a teacher or in general? I feel like it affected it more at the beginning of the pandemic. Obviously, school shutting down, I got into online teaching and had to kind of completely restructure the way I teach and try and figure out how to do a lot of technology that I never used before. Hmm. And then also just athletics has been a lot harder. So coaching has been a little bit more iffy. Although up where I am, it's kind of nice because it's a smaller community. 
we were one of the first that were able to open our pool and get back to training. And we've also been teaching in person all year where there's a lot of school districts here that haven't. So I've been really grateful for that. I have had a few of my students that have picked not to do in person and have picked to do online. And so then they have a separate online thing. But other than that, I just feel like it's been really isolating. I haven't been able to see a lot of people that I'm used to seeing or been able to do a lot of the things that I'm used to doing. And I've just spent a lot more time by myself than normal. I live up here by myself. So especially... April and May it was just really isolating and something that I was constantly calling my mom and she would just be like you bored again yes I'm bored again like just talk to me (laughs) yeah how has that been balancing like having students with disabilities has it been difficult balancing all these different students needs yeah especially last year when we were doing online giving them their accommodations was really hard because most of them required being in person It was, okay, how do I share my screen with you and then figure out how to send this to you so you can submit it online because they couldn't figure out how to do the technology part of it and going through an assignment, helping them read whatever it is that they were doing and then helping them answer the questions. Yeah, there was just lots more hoops to go through. Wow. It was just really overwhelming for them. Yeah. Thank goodness your school still provided that even though it was difficult because, you know, (laughs) with how hard 2020 is, it's just especially scary for people with disabilities and you don't want them to miss out on their education, but you want them to be safe. Yeah. It's definitely a very good thing that my kids are back in school this year because it's much easier for everyone and they get way more out of it. So did you have any, did you have any like moral dilemmas about going back to school? Especially as someone who's disabled yourself and with having a perspective into disability and and knowing that COVID-19 can be disabling for people, you know? You know, my whole thing is that if we follow the protocols and we are able to do what we're supposed to, we can make it so it's safe. I really felt like we had few enough kids that we could spread them out go through, clean everything that I never really was super concerned about it. At the beginning of the year, we actually had one of my aides in my class get sick. And because of the protocols that we had in place, none of the rest of us did. We did what we were supposed to. We quarantined and came back and we were good. I felt like it was what needed to happen. Hmm. And those that could have the option and didn't feel safe, had that option that they could stay online and do what they needed to do. So if there were parents or families that were really concerned about it for people that were in their home, they had an option where if the families felt safe, we felt safe, we could be in person. And then the people that felt like they needed to stay online and to stay home could do that as well. So we really had a good option for everyone so that everyone could stay safe. Okay. And more into your personal experience with your job, have you ever faced any ableism within your career? And if so, how did you work through that? I don't know if I would say I've faced a lot of it since starting teaching. Little background. I've taught at three different schools each of my three years of teaching. Hmm. Every time I've gone to a new school, it was just this whole flood of more questions of who's that new girl without legs? Who's who's this walking halls? And even still, it's kind of funny to me that 
sometimes I'll be walking the halls and you just hear the kids, that's the teacher with no lights. I mean, they're elementary schoolers, so they just don't know how to approach it. But anyways, it's just like lots of questions and things like that. And most of the time it's really cute. And then sometimes it's like, okay, great. I'm glad you're asking me, but I actually have to go. I have some place to be. But as far as like ableism, especially from coworkers or other adults, I feel like I had that more when I was in college and I was working on getting my degree. When I was a sophomore, I was in a special ed program and was doing this adaptive PE class. And one of the teachers just brought up concerns with me. I mean, so we have lots of kids with meltdowns that we have to get them to a safe place so that if they're having a meltdown, they can be safe and all of the rest of the kids in the school can be safe and things like that. And so there's some physical requirements of being able to lift kids who maybe can't walk or get them transferred from a chair to a desk or things like that. And one of my teachers just took me aside and was like, are you sure you can do this? And she also kind of made it seem like I wouldn't be employable. And it was kind of frustrating to me because she was like, oh, people will look at this and say, oh, she can't do these things. And so we can't hire her. And it just kind of frustrated me because it's like, okay, am I not going to be able to get a job? Hmm. That was like the first time I've ever really felt like someone tried to discourage me from being a teacher and from doing what I really wanted to do. And I ended up switching to a different teaching major to do something else with special ed. And I did it and got into my coaching stuff and then immediately went back to special ed and was like, no, this is what I want to do. And I mean, it's never been brought up with anything. I don't know. I feel like she just kind of tried to scare me and I don't know why she did, but that's probably been the one time that I really felt the most ableist circumstances with me and teaching. And it worked out fine, but it was kind of weird because it did make me doubt for a little bit of like, okay, can I really do this? Right. It's hard when people present that and you're like, is that their fears or is that practical? And will this be hard? Will this, Mm -hmm. can I find accommodations for myself? Or is this something that really is just going to be hard for me? It's really, really hard. Yeah. Mm. Well, here you are. But here I am. I've been doing it for three years. and Look at you now. (laughs) Yeah. I was curious, what made you decide to go into special ed in the first place? Yeah, so my mom worked in special ed when I was all growing up. So she was an aide in a special ed preschool. And so I just heard from her the stuff that she got to do at work all day. And then I also had you know, special ed kids in my class growing up. And I always really liked to go and talk to them and kind of help them out with their stuff. I was a peer tutor in high school. And I ended up doing an internship in high school at a specialized school and just absolutely loved it and decided that that's what I wanted to do and that I really liked working with those kids. What is it about them that you enjoy so much? It's hard to describe. I mean, they're just the happiest kids. If you ever want just like pure joy, pure love, go to a special ed classroom. Those kids will give you their worst and they will give you their best. As they try and figure out all of their emotions and how to access the world, you can just see progress in different ways. You can see as they figure things out, how much it helps them. 
and how much joy they get from that. And I also really like working with communication and being able to help them advocate for themselves. And I like working with the OTs and PTs and doing all of those little other things that they need to access school that you just don't get with other kids. Yeah, that's awesome to hear that it includes self-advocacy and like occupational therapy, like needed things that if they don't have access outside of school, it probably wouldn't happen for a lot of kids. You know, that's awesome. I'm curious when you are learning to become a special education teacher, if there's any like insights or guidance or curriculum given by actual intellectually disabled people? Like, is that ever considered when you're teaching intellectually disabled students? Is that a thing? Uh, let me make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. So the biggest thing that we do is that we get time to go in classrooms and kind of observe occupational therapy and speech therapy things and different ways that they are integrated into the classrooms and are able to interact with peers and things like that. So we take an assistive technology class that teaches us about different communication devices that they can use mm -hmm. and how to use those. And then we also did, I don't know, it was kind of like a panel with different stations. We had OTs and PTs come, and I think there are speech therapists there too that would teach us how to use some of the like sensory things and how to see what their needs are. So they would teach us, okay, if this kid is having this behavior, a lot of times it will mean this and that you can have these options so that they can help regulate and things mm. like that. And I guess we did have a panel of parents of students with disabilities and their kids and they came and just did like Q&As with us a few times mm -hmm. that we were able to talk to them and kind of see what their experiences have been, which was cool. And I really like doing that. But nothing from like disabled adults? Yeah. So some of them are adults. Some of them were in transition programs. So for my kids, oh. when they leave high school, they'll go to these transition programs mm -hmm. that they'll get to go get job experience, learn how to do laundry and learn how to cook different things and stuff like that. And so we did talk to a few of those kids, um, and I guess they're adults. They're not kids anymore. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really, really good that that's included. We we don't know a lot about that side of education, so that's really good to know. Mm -hmm. Okay, this question is really big. You can take it whatever direction you want to take it. What has your general experience been as a disabled woman in the church? You can share positive, neutral, negative, however you want to answer. Yeah, this one's hard to answer because obviously there's some of everything. There's positive, there's negative, there's anything and everything in between. I've gone to church since I was a baby. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I was in the same ward from the time I was six until I was 17. And so they kind of grew up knowing me, seeing me run around and do everything. They knew I was in sports. And I feel like in that ward, it was never really questioned what I could or couldn't do because they saw me just do everything. You know, my parents were really great in the fact that they never told me no. They never told me I couldn't mm -hmm. try something. They really encouraged me to go out and do anything that I really wanted to. Because of that, I never really questioned, oh, can I do that? It was always mm -hmm. like, oh, I want to go do that too. So let's go. And my ward really saw that growing up. And so they never really questioned it either. But it was kind of interesting. 
So I moved here to Utah my senior year and it was new people. They didn't really know me yet. And it was always just like, I can't believe she can do that. That's so cool. And they always would tell stories of like, oh, we were boating and Amy did this and I didn't think she was going to stay on the boat and things like that, where it's Mm -hmm. like more so like discouraging. And I feel like that just needs to change. It needs to go from, oh, I can't believe she did that into encouraging people like, oh, hey, like, why aren't you doing that? Why not go try? Because you can figure out ways to do pretty much anything. I feel like there's very few things that I haven't been able to figure out a way that I could do. I think no matter the disability, if you're patient enough and you are creative enough, you can find a way for them to do it too. For me, I grew up with the, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like they kind of let me take the lead and see what I could do. But I've seen a lot of other people who have taken a lot more of a passive approach and just said, oh, okay, well, I can't do it the way that they do it. So I'm just going to sit and watch. Mm -hmm. I wish that would change more. Right. That really speaks to leaders of youth and of primary kids, how much they can impact a disabled child or neurodiverse child's experience. You want to try to make activities that are practical for disabled kids, but you also want to allow them to be in an environment where they feel safe to try and to grow. Yeah, I think it's dangerous to say that people can just do anything if they put their mind to it hard enough or if they're creative enough, because a lot of times there are things that are outside of our control, especially if we're disabled or neurodivergent or both. I think creativity is great when trying to do things, especially if it's something that you really, really want to do. But I think we have to recognize it shouldn't all be up to us as disabled people to try to make it work. You know, there should be accommodations on the other end from the people in charge instead of just trying to make us do something in a way that's unnatural for us, putting us through physical pain or emotional trauma. I don't know. I just feel like there's a difference between like me feeling like I'm left out because I can't do it and me thinking like if only they do this then I can join in you know and this is where you really have to let whoever it is you're dealing with I think you have to let them take charge of okay this is what I'm comfortable with this is the way that works best for me asking them first, like, okay, this is something that we want to do. Is this something you're comfortable with? Can we do it this way? And letting them kind of take control of how that works is the best option. I love that. I like what you were saying just there. I think there's a process, especially for people who become disabled or their disabilities become more drastic later in life. Like there is definitely an adjustment period where you feel like you can't do anything and you're frustrated and angry and sad. And and even people who've been disabled their whole lives will go through these periods too. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the only thing that would get me out of it is if someone is patient with me and not pressuring me. And like you said, letting me make my decision about it, you know, like for a long time, I was scared to try marijuana. (laughs) Because I didn't know how it was going to work with my narcolepsy, my cataplexy. I was afraid it was going to trigger my cataplexy. And that I had an experience where I accidentally inhaled some, like secondhand, and I had a seizure and I couldn't move for like three hours and it was really bad. So from that time, I was like, I never want to do it again. 
But other people with my conditions were like, well, it helps us. It's self-medication. Anyway, so I was curious about that, but I never like would do it around people that I don't know very well and who don't know my disabilities very well, you know, just because I feel like I don't know if I'm safe. But then I finally was able to be around someone who knows me, has known me for years, and is there to accommodate me. He said, I'll let you lean on me if you need help walking afterwards, you know, and I'm not going to give you like a huge dose right away. This is just a tiny little piece just for you to try to experience it. And this was actually for a homework assignment too. But (laughs) anyway, and I really appreciated that he was letting me do it on my own terms. So I, I totally agree with what you were saying about letting us make the decision. <laughs> Wasn't it like kind of a self-appointed homework assignment, Serena? <laughs> they told us to do something that we'd never done before, okay? And that's the only thing I can think of. I just want to be clear, you didn't have a school that was like, okay, this weekend you're all doing drugs. <laughs> it was my master's degree program, okay? And it was, and it's legal in the state of California, and we did it in the state of California, and I was 25 years old at the time. <laughs> you're like, just to be clear... And as writers, we're supposed to have like diverse experiences and it's supposed to make us better writers. And I was like, well, that's a diverse experience. <laughs> right, so right. anyway, <laughs> um, that's funny. you get my yeah. point, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, here's the next question. What kind of barriers, if any, that you've noticed, physical, social, church culture, church structure, policy, callings, what kind of barriers have you faced in church? It's an interesting one. Okay, so I feel like it's different for each disability. For me, I feel like my disability doesn't really affect that much at church. You know, it doesn't affect me being able to sit in a pew and go to church. It doesn't affect my ability to read the scriptures or to do most of the activities. I mean, there's always outliers, you know, some things that you have to adjust. But I feel like there's lots of things that are affected by it for other people. To name one, ADHD, you know, it makes it really hard for some people to come and concentrate and to listen and to follow along with what's being said. And I don't know if we always see how church affects other people a lot of the time. Yeah. Especially with disabilities that you don't necessarily see. Mine is pretty obvious. You know, you walk in with a dress, people are going to see my prosthetics. But that's not the case for everyone. And I feel like that's where we need to be the most careful is those that you can't see and being able to reach out to those people and figure out what's going to help them to have the best experience at church that they can have. And I feel like that's where the biggest barriers are and the ones that are the hardest to break down because there's not always an easy answer. Now that we've experienced Zoom church for (laughs) some time. Yeah. uh, Do you believe that that should remain an option for disabled members to have? Like you mentioned, sometimes your prosthetics don't fit as well and it's harder to use them and more painful than other times. Is there a time, like let's say in six months, if it was an option to you, would you like to have the option to say, oh, my legs aren't working. I don't want to do the chair today. I'm just going to do Zoom church. Would that be like a good thing for you or like, nah, I just need to go? I mean, personally, I would probably just pick to go because for me, it's easier to get up and get out the door and just go than it is to get myself. I don't know. I'm more motivated to go in person than I am. If I would say, oh, I'm just not going to go. I'll just join Zoom. I don't feel like I would get a lot out of it because Hmm. I would zone out personally. Mm -hmm. 
I would just say, oh, well, I guess the Zoom link isn't working or, oh, this is being weird. So I'm just going to not go. Okay. I'm much more prone to making excuses. For me, it would be a cop out, but that may not be the case for someone else. I feel like if it is something that would help someone in the ward and would help them to gain access to church and to get that spiritual experience, sure. I don't see anything wrong with being able to do it over Zoom as well. Yeah, I really hope that now that we know that it's possible and it's pretty simple for wards to do that, it'll stick around because there's, I mean, you know, so many different kinds of disabilities, so many different reasons that a person wouldn't be able to go a particular Sunday or multiple Sundays in a row for however much time, you know? Yeah, it's something that's kind of cool about it too, is that, I don't know, this could be for anyone. Like you could go, if you were across the country, let's say you had like a family emergency, you could still get that strength from being able to go to your own ward with people that you know, and listen, I don't know. And maybe this isn't even something that's tricky or something that you need to figure out. Like, does it really matter if you go in person or if you go over zoom? Probably not. I see the biggest issue with it being how to do the sacrament because that can't be given through zoom. (laughs) it doesn't really work that way so well if women got the priesthood then it would solve that issue (laughs) there you go yeah that's true when women get the priesthood i should say (laughs) i i think you bring up an interesting point it makes me wonder why like i don't know we feel this pressure like the way you were saying if you don't go to church in person then it's easy to like make excuses why do we feel this pressure to go to church anyway do we really need it in our lives if we're able to study the gospel on our own and have virtual content and have our neighbors that we're interacting with? Do we need to have a physical Sunday meeting? I think a lot of that is just tradition. And I think there's other ways we can innovate and improve on the church experience without having to feel that pressure that makes it harder for some people who are disabled and neurodivergent. I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? I mean, I I can see both ways. I can see the argument that we are around members all the time here in Utah and we can get spiritual experiences anywhere. I mean, for me, so with COVID, there was almost two months where I didn't get to take the sacrament because of different things. And when I was able to, my parents came out and I was able to do it with them one week. And as we're able to just meet together and do the sacrament together, it just completely changed the game for me for that week, being able to do the sacrament with my family. And a lot of times, especially outside of Utah, like our ward was our family there. And so to me, I think there's still something to going and being able to go and take the sacrament with your ward, having that chance to just set aside the hour to do sacrament and to do things that help you think of the savior more. And I think it's also a way that I just know that's what I'm doing Sunday and it makes it something different than the other days of the week where the other days of the week, yeah, I'll sit and read my scriptures and I'll do things with the gospel, but not in the way that I do on Sundays. Yeah. We kind of were talking about barriers before. What was the process like when you were called on your mission? Did you face any barriers there or people trying to discourage you? 
No one tried to discourage me. The biggest thing was when I did all my doctor appointments for my mission, they had like different, I guess, boxes that you check of, I could walk this far, or I could do such and such. And talking with my doctor, it was kind of like, he didn't want to bring it up, but he also was like, okay, are you okay with me checking not the highest one, but like one that's lower saying you couldn't walk quite as far as some missions would require you to, it's kind of hard because I feel like there's been enough disability advocacy that people know we don't really want to be treated differently, but there's times where we kind of have to treat it differently so that we aren't doing something that we're not comfortable with or something that we're not capable of. I just feel like it's this really touchy subject of, okay, what part of this do we check? What could you really feasibly do and what would work best for you? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that should be known before starting that process so that you can really just be prepared, like, and think it through before going and doing it. True. If there was more information before you apply for a mission of like, here's what a mission looks like. Here's kind of what you would need to do. Here's what the paperwork looks like. Like you don't really see anything until you're actually filling out your paperwork. And then you're like, oh, oh my goodness. You know, now I have to think of all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point. That could inform people a lot more on deciding to serve a mission or not, because putting so much emotional energy and like spiritual energy into wanting to serve a mission so bad and then not being sure if you're going to get a yes or no, it can be devastating if there was more information given to us beforehand to inform our desire and our decision, that would be a lot better. Yeah. You know this too, that I've seen people who haven't had it work out as well as it did for me either, or it wasn't as expected. For me, the process, it was kind of eye-opening and something that's like, oh, I didn't really realize I was going to have to go and decide this. So I don't know. It's it's more emotionally investing, putting your papers in and even just submitting them to go on a mission than I think a lot of people expect. And that was something that I was surprised with that I yeah. don't know if they always prepare you for. I'm actually really impressed that your doctor was like checking with you and saying, hey, is it okay if I mark this? Well, because I was sent home early from my mission because I had symptoms that they couldn't explain. And then about a year into the process, I get diagnosed with narcolepsy and cataplexy. And but my problem is I kept I, I kept switching in between states. And so I didn't really have like a doctor that I went to every single time. And the sleep specialist saw me like one time, but he worked with pulmonology. Hmm meaning like lungs and narcolepsy is a is an autoimmune like disorder in your brain yeah, it's a neurological thing it's-, it's a neurological thing why neurochemical thing why why is this quote sleep specialist who's a pulmonologist supposed to sign off on my mission papers and he wrote a terrible letter and basically was like yeah i don't know if she can do it hmm. and i was like who are you you're not an authority like who are you uh, i'm really impressed that you had a doctor who was willing to check with you and make sure that the things he was writing were accurate from your perception i think that's so important 
That's another level of difference that I didn't consider. Like we talked about before how your leaders in the church can treat you so differently and encourage you or discourage you from a mission. But even doctors themselves, some are more ableist and some are less ableist. Some are more experienced in whatever disability you have and some aren't. Some know you better as a person and some don't. Like there's so many places where like depending on where you live or, you know, all these things on if you'd be called or not. And uh, yeah, you need a doctor who knows you. Like it would be really mm-hmm. easy for me to go to a doctor who had no idea who I was and just say, oh, you're an amputee. So you can't really walk that far. Or you can't do these things. So this wouldn't really work out. Mm-hmm. But if you knew me and you knew what I had done my whole life, you would see something completely different. I just think that's probably the most important part. Like we know what we've done. We know what our capabilities are better than pretty much anyone else. And sometimes doctors don't understand that. (sighs) Yeah. It's so hard to find a doctor. And I think there's a lot of underlying issues in that too, a lot of class issues and race issues and like just the age that you're diagnosed, you know, like, yeah, yeah, this is a really important discussion. I don't want to go too deep in it, but I, I just wanted to acknowledge there's a lot of underlying issues there. And like you said, there's a lot of emotional labor that comes with submitting your papers and you don't even realize it most of the time when you're an 18 or 19 year old. <laughs> yeah. I was just this little 18 year old, like, oh, I'm going to go on a mission. And I was so excited about it. And then you get into it and you're like, okay, this is a lot heavier than I thought it would be. So. Yeah. And just to clarify, you submitted them and received like a proselyting call or what, what did your call look like? Yeah. So I put my papers in and it actually was a pretty quick process for me. So I, wow. I started talking to my Bishop and doing it in like January. And I had my call by middle of March, hmm. especially for someone that has had so many medical things. It was all in all simpler than it is for a lot of people. Do you believe that your testimony or spirituality is connected in any way to your disability? If so, how? For me, not necessarily. I feel like my spirituality and just the ways that I've been able to have spiritual experiences have much more to do with who I am as a child of God and who I'm trying to become than what my life looks like and what, I don't know, what my physical appearance is or what my challenges are. And obviously like challenges have brought me a lot of my spiritual experiences and they've led me to asking questions that have given me some of my most spiritual experiences. And I think those challenges are different for everyone. Some of them for me are having to do with my legs and some of them are not. And so I feel like just different things that I've had to deal with, both with my disability and without have led me to look to Heavenly Father for answers to lots of different questions. And so I guess yes and no, because at the core of my spirituality is my spirit and who I am as a child of God, not my physical appearance or my capabilities. Hmm. I love that. Thank you for that. Amy, what brings you joy in your life? So many things. (laughs) I think the biggest thing that has brought me joy is obviously 
being able to be a follower of Christ and being able to have that hope of things being able to become better. And just that there's someone out there that I can trust and that I can believe in who is on my side and helping me to be a better me and my family and being able to see them and be around them. Like that's probably where the core of my joy comes from. And I feel like those are the things that don't change. Christ is always going to be there. Heavenly Father is always going to be there. My family is always going to be there. Beautiful. What is frustrating? So many things. (laughs) (laughs) In the same answer both ways. (laughs) So many things. (laughs) Life's opposites. Life is all about, there's opposition in all things, right? As much joy as you have, there's as much sorrow and as much frustration. I guess for me, what frustrates me the most is uncontrollable things, which is kind of bad because you can't control them, right? But I just feel like the things that have brought me the most frustration have been the things that even though I've advocated for myself, even though I've done the things that I'm supposed to do that haven't worked out. And Hmm. in the end, they have worked out. But in the moment, that's when I get the most frustrated is I guess when I do have to just suck things up and deal with them. Advocating for yourself in terms of your disability or are you thinking of something else? Yeah. I don't know. I guess a quick story. So when I was at BYU, my senior year, as I was trying to do my student teaching, I was coaching at a school down in Provo. And in Provo, they have their sports as a class. Like I was coaching swim. So we had a swim class that all of my swimmers took and it was during the school day. So they would come to the pool before like this bell had technically run because it was part of their class. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I would have had to leave my student teaching early so that I could go coach. And mm-hmm. well, at first I started a conversation asking if we could figure out a way to make it work. and they told me no. And then they said, if you really want to keep trying, you can do an appeal and go through the Dean. And that still got turned down. And so I was just really frustrated because I wanted to teach and I wanted to coach. And part of their job was to help me be able to do both in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They were telling me no. And I was really frustrated. And so I finally just was like, okay, I'm done. I mean, there was nothing else I could do. I appealed it. I tried to fight it. And there wasn't another step, really, at least that I knew of. So I just kind of had to suck it up. And I ended up coming up here to Heber. Up here, they don't have it as a class. So I could still do it. And I didn't know that at the time. I just kind of came up here my first week. I did my first week of student teaching and I just kind of went over to the pool to swim and ended up talking to the pool manager and I started coaching like the next week and it was fine. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, I found a way to do it anyways, but in the moment I was really frustrated. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I feel like I fought really hard to be an advocate for myself. And then, I don't know, because I feel like that's what we're taught. We're taught to fight for what we believe in. We're taught to try and reach out and to figure out how to solve issues. And they never really talk about, okay, what do you do if you can't solve it? 
but anyways, it still worked out in the end and I love it up here. And I probably wouldn't have come up here unless that happened. I love that. Okay. Last question, Amy, if you could tell an able-bodied person member or not anything about your life as an amputee, what would you express? This could be the main takeaway from our conversation. For me, my biggest wish with talking with anyone is that I'm just treated the way that they would treat anyone else. I feel like good or bad, no matter what, I'm treated differently because I have to deal with getting asked questions when no one else does. I have to deal with like being the one who stands out all the time. And sometimes I wish I could just be that person that they would just come up and treat like a friend and treat like any other person walking on the street. And most of the time that happens, but I feel like there's a lot of times where it doesn't. And even if like they treat you like normally, they always have that like in the back of their mind of like, oh, I have to consider her legs or, oh, I have to think about this. I wish that didn't have to be the case. I wish things were just like accessible to everyone. Yeah. I love that. Cause if you are treated like everyone else, it's like, if someone needs help, you help them. And if they don't, you don't, you know, you let them do their thing. If you treat disabled people like that too, then that works for us too. And people think that it doesn't. People assume that we can't ask for help and they have to offer it. Nope. It doesn't work that way. We, we have help if we need it. We have like some people have caregivers. If not, we can advocate for ourselves and ask for help. Most of the time we have figured things out and we have ways of doing things and people need to understand that and respect that. Yeah, I think people underestimate us. And if they just realize that, like you said, we have our own way of doing things and just let it let us do it our way, then then we're all good. You know, like I saw this metaphor for autism, actually. Here, Serena is mentioning Ariane Fatou from TikTok. And it said trying to do something with autism versus like a neurotypical or an allistic person is like, the task is the island, right? And you're on the other side of the island. The neurotypical people have cars and the autistic people have a boat. If everybody just goes the way that they are able to, like the neurotypical people drive their cars and the autistic people go on their boat, then they can still get to the island. And the outcome is the same. They're able to do whatever needs to be done, right? The problem is when you try to say, no, you need to go across this bridge because boats aren't good enough, the water isn't good enough, or that's not the right way. You need to drag your boat across this bridge and then people make fun of you or look down on you or if you give up halfway through because the boat is heavy and you're dragging it across this bridge because it doesn't have wheels, then that's not equal, right? So I think that can be applied to more than just autistic people, but any disabled person who has found a way creatively, like you were saying, Amy, to do something that they care about, just let us do it our way and we'll get the task done. You don't need to doubt us. You don't need to ask us a bunch of questions and patronize us like children. Just give us the time and space. And if we need something, an extra accommodation, we'll ask for it. But otherwise, we're good. (laughs) Ah, that's good. I will also say this, though, that I am extremely stubborn. And 
I will not ask for help unless I'm like desperate. And so I think it goes two ways that we should feel comfortable asking for help if we really need it. But at the same time, like we shouldn't have to deal with people constantly badgering us. Do you need help? Can I do this for you? Can I do this for you? When we're just doing our normal thing and we are fine. 100%. Love that. I agree with that. Let me say that Ryan is exactly the same way, Amy. There was this one time where he was trying to get home from school and it snowed like feet and he was trying to push home in his wheelchair and people kept stopping and saying, oh my gosh, do you need help? And he's like, no, I can do it. And it took him like two hours to get home because he was just stuck in the snow and he would not accept help. And I'm like, Ryan, there's a line. Like, don't kill yourself trying to like be like, no, I can do it. You know, I am the one at basketball tournaments that literally I will have things like falling out of my chair or like <laughs> I have things behind me and I'm like, I'm fine. And I'm like, going to go back in. Anyways. Yes. I'm the same way. And <laughs> my friends always make fun of me. Cause like, even in my kitchen, like I'll climb on counters because I don't want to ask for someone to help to go grab something. And <laughs> it's just something I've done. Like all I was yeah. four years old and I was climbing on counters so that I could reach things. And <laughs> it was just something that I did because I didn't want to go bother someone and ask for help. Because every time I would ask my siblings for help, they would be like, go put your legs on. Why do we have to help you? <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's what I like grew up. They were like, figure it out, figure out a way to get it. Yeah, that's siblings. That's siblings. They're like, we're not going to do that for you. And you're like, (laughs) oh, that's hilarious. Uh, Yeah. So, anyways, I see both sides. (laughs) I love that. Well, thank you for joining us, Amy. We really appreciated you tonight. And I know there's so many people that will love hearing your stories and your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Please follow us on Instagram and join the conversation there at holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. And contribute to our Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman. And if you would like to be involved, maybe volunteer with transcripts or be one of our interviewees, you can email us at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Thanks, everyone.